Let's pray before we open the word together. Father, we just ask you to uh, open our hearts to the truth that is here, Father, to these events which actually happened in history. We just thank you for your grace and your mercy which allows us to know the true story, the whole story, Father, all that we need to know about the wonderful things that you did and bringing forth your Savior into the world, Father. We just are so grateful. We thank you. We ask you to uh, bring these truths home to us. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Is it possible for a man or a woman to know what God wants from them? Or are we just sort of alone in the quest for spiritual truth, just condemned to sort of sampling every dish of religious experience until we find one that suits our palate? And, oh, I think I'll take a little bit of that. What's, what's the story out there? You know, the more and more I hear the culture talking to us, more and more you hear the, uh, it sounds really pious but, um, and spiritual, but it's the, it's the search that really matters, you know? We're all on this quest, and as long as we're on the quest, that's a good thing, and seeking and seeking, and even if there are no answers, and we never find the answers. Now, you know, I know that sounds real deep and everything, but... Hey, when I'm going, I want to land somewhere. I want to go somewhere. It's like, I, mean, I like traveling, but I do like to get somewhere where I'm, where I'm going, you know. The idea of sort of endlessly flying over the ocean or just being on a lost ship, I mean, that's not really, to me, a really great experience. <laughs> but that's a very common idea in our culture. Do we really have to grope in the darkness for spiritual truth? Or has God shown us the way? Christianity has always had an answer for that, that God has spoken we know what he wants, and he has shown us the way. And nowhere is that truth more plainly asserted than in the narratives surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ, the taking of a human nature by God, the Son, actually becoming a man, dwelling among us. As John's Gospel says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's not... You know, the search is over at that point. You're not wandering around. If the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, you can walk up and hold Him and speak to Him and know Him, as men did. In fact, one of the most beautiful images ever in my mind is, is the Apostle John. It says he was leaning on the breast of Jesus Christ at the Last Supper. Leaning on, physically leaning on Him, feeling His breathing and hearing His heart beat. And he was a real person. Can you imagine that, having that privilege? This morning, as we continue our look at Luke's Gospel, we're going to see the, a veritable explosion of divine information. That is, here God makes known His desires, His plan, and His means, how He's going to accomplish it all, all of which are revealed by the mouth of a man who was struck deaf and mute, struck by an angel for unbelief, but freed to give God's Word by a simple act of obedience. And last time we saw, last week we looked at the song of Mary, um, Jesus' mother, a model of praise to God. And this morning we're going to look at another hymn of praise, um, this time from Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. And let's just read the section, this passage together. It's a little bit lengthy and then we're going to come back and just look at the details in it. And it begins in verse uh, 57. It says, Now the time had come for Elizabeth, that's Zacharias' wife, to give birth and she brought forth a son, and her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. It came about that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zecharias after his father. His mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. They said to her, There's nobody among your relatives who's called by that name. Hey, 
breaking tradition, gal. And they made signs to his father who, uh, you know, couldn't speak. And uh, uh, as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet. And he wrote as follows, his name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he began to speak in praise of God. And fear came on all those living around them. And all these matters were being talked about in the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them kept them in mind saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days." And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of their salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Isn't that great? <laughs> Let's get our bearings in terms of Luke's uh, narrative structure here before we look at the text. There's a real flow going on here. First we had the Annunciation. That's how the Gospel really begins. The Annunciation of the birth of John the Baptist to Zacharias. Remember, he was the priest. He was ministering in the holy place and an angel actually just like appeared there and told him what was going to happen, which he didn't believe. So he got uh, a, a mini curse put on him. And then that annunciation is followed by the annunciation to Mary on the birth of Christ. And then that annunciation is followed by the meeting of the mommies and in the, in the wombs, the, in a sense, the meeting of the Messiah and the, the prophet that's going to announce him. Then there's two birth narratives that follow. The birth narrative of John the Baptist, which we just read, and then the birth narrative of Jesus Christ. It's just a fascinating arrangement and remarkable for study as you explore the similarities and the contrast between what it says about the parents and the birth and everything else. But our text today focuses on the birth of John and this prophetic message. So let's get to the story quickly and then we can get on to the, the, uh, the hymn part of it which is very significant. So back to verse 56 there. Um, it said Mary stayed with Elizabeth about three months and then she went home. Then 57, now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth. She brought forth a son. The neighbors and the relatives heard that the Lord had displayed great mercy toward her and they were rejoicing with her. So Mary's gone after three months uh, pregnant herself. Elizabeth comes to term, delivers a boy um, verse 58, there's this big celebration with a, a sense of a wonder, the neighbors and the relatives. Remember, she was well past childbearing years, so this is quite an amazing event. Um, you know, she was past the hot flashes and everything. And um, this, so this is a miracle baby, not unlike what happened to Sarah of old and Abraham, you know. And why were they rejoicing? Verse 58, because, because the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her. Mercy, mercy. Mercy can be defined as the goodness or the love of God shown 
to those who are in misery or distress, um, regardless of what they deserve. And God is merciful to Elizabeth. So God's showing favor to those uh, in a troubled condition in life. That's what mercy is. And Elizabeth has experienced the mercy of God. It's, uh, it was an anguished life she lived. And, and I'm sure she was a very pious woman. But in that culture, to not have a child, was uh, to be barren, was just a, not a, uh, a happy thing. And it was a lifetime of unfruitfulness, a lifetime of pain when people would ask, maybe I don't know if they asked it the way they do now, but so when are you two going to start your little family? You know, that kind of a thing. Oh, we've been trying for forever, and, and, and now we're past that, you know. Um, all of that was over because God had selected her to bear the prophet who would prepare the way for the Messiah. And at the display of God's mercy, there's this celebration of joy uh, breaking out. But this mercy is only the beginning of a, a massive display of God's love and grace and goodness, a, a great display of mercy, which we're going to see in a few minutes. But mercy appears three times in this passage. It's, it's really a dominant idea. Verse 59, we come to the naming of the baby, officially done at the time of circumcision. Uh, this is a big event, you know, it, it still is among Jewish people, Orthodox people. All the, the men gather around to watch the circumcision. I don't know how much fun that can be, but it, it's, a, it's a big deal. Much like baptism in Catholic circles, you know, that's when the, the name is sort of officially given there. Especially among certain ethnic groups, you know, there's like the, the, the baptism of a baby is like a really big deal. Circumcision was just like that. Now, his dad... Zacharias, who's responsible to do the naming, was mute. So, have, I mean, have you ever had a situation like this? The relatives start taking over, you know? And if you're mute, you, you can't stop them. How are you going to stop them? You know, so they all start doing the whole thing, and they're saying what they want to say. They're all talking. They won't allow Elizabeth a word in edgewise. Oh, call him Zacharias. Zacharias Jr., that should be his name. After all, the angel appeared to him. You know, he's, he's important, even though he got kind of blasted by the angel. I mean, he's... Let's name him after Zechariah. And Elizabeth says, no, we're going we're to name him John, uh, period. And, uh, and then verse 61, the relatives are um, saying, well, now, Elizabeth, you know that there's no John in your family. That's just silly. Why would you name him John? There's a, uh, let's name him Zechariah. So don't break up the family tradition. Honor your husband, Zechariah. And she says, no, John. And in verse 62, um, they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. That gives us an indication that maybe he was made deaf as well as mute when the angel struck him. All we heard at the first part was that he was mute, couldn't speak. But, but if they're making signs to him, that would indicate that he couldn't hear either, right? So they're like, baby, hey, you know, what do you want to call him? And, uh, and so he asks for the tablet and he, and he writes. He doesn't write, we have decided to call him John. He doesn't write, my wife and I prefer the name John. He writes, his name is John. Because it already is. Why is his name John? Because the angel said his name is going to be John. That's what you're going to call him. So they're not, it's not a question or a preference. It's, it's a simple act of obedience. So the name's already been selected by God and revealed by the angelic visitor. And you know what the name John means? Johannan in, in, in uh, the Greek text there. It means God is merciful. And that's exactly what they want to call him. So, bam! As soon as Zechariah obediently follows the command of God and names his son John as he was told to do, his mouth is open. And verse 64 says he began to speak in praise of God. And of course, that's just what Gabriel said would happen way back in verse 20, that um, this was a temporary condition, and here it comes 
to the fore. So, then the following two verses tell us of the, uh, the strong reaction to those events. Verse 65 says, Fear came on all those living around them, and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. I mean, all kinds of talk and activity. An eye is going to be kept on that kid, I guarantee you, after these events happen, because... Nothing miraculous or really fantastic like that had ever happened for 400 years. I mean, it had been a long, long time since God had spoken. And so this is big news. And the story told, um, is told to Luke's purpose here. And he now goes on to the prophecy. Zechariah not only opens his mouth in praise, but at some point he is laid hold of by the Holy Spirit of God. And he speaks forth prophetic speech, God's word. It says he prophesied in verse 67 there. So it is a content-packed hymn of praise, a theology of messianic salvation from the eyes of an old covenant saint, a pre-Christian prophet, if you will. Remember, Mary and Zacharias and Elizabeth, they're living before the gospel. So their worldview is entirely Old Testament. That's how they think. That's what they perceive and the way they've been taught and um, all of that. So... um, what is laid out here prophetically is what God is doing, why God is doing what he's doing, and how God's going to do it. And does God communicate his will to people? Yes, he does. And that's why it is written for us to have. And as full of doctrine as this is, there is an immensely practical challenge in this as well. We'll get to that at the end here. Zechariah begins with praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel... But he doesn't stop there. His praise is formed in response to the activity and the character and the revelation of God. As we talked about last time, the emotions of praise are rooted in what God does and who God is. It's a response. So it's loaded with meaning. It's not religious. I want to be religious and feel incredible. It's God has done this incredible thing. I am moved by him to praise him. And that's how he's reacting. So all of our praise should be informed praise and shaped by truth about God and what he's done. So here it comes. What's the why of Zechariah's praise? Well, God is acting. God is doing. What is God doing? Verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for, here it is, here's the reason, the purpose, he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. So there's three verbs there. He's visited us, he's accomplished something, which is redemption, and he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. So typical Old Testament style prophecy here. It's given in the past tense because when a prophecy is made, when God speaks through a man, it's like it's already done because it's going to happen. There's nothing that stops. So it's often done in the past tense, like this is. And once spoken, it's just a guaranteed reality. So often prophetic speech is done in the past tense, in the old as well as here. The messianic uh, idea, the Messiah still in the womb, is just as sure as redemption accomplished because the plan of God cannot be thwarted. Nothing can stop it. God is sovereign, infinitely so, powerful. Why praise? Because God has visited his people. God makes house calls. I don't know if you knew that, but he has visited his people. God is contacting humanity here. 
Second, he has accomplished redemption for his people. Redemption is a word that has a very precise meaning in the Bible. We've talked about it a million times here. It means a price paid to release or liberate someone from captivity. That's what the word redemption means. You pay a price and you purchase someone's freedom. It often regards a slave payment, uh, how to free somebody from slavery in the Bible. But the visitation of God is going to mean liberating his people. God is visiting our world to free people from bondage. The Messiah will pay a price to release people from slavery, from bondage. How will it be done? Well, the third thing he says, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. So a descendant of David, redemption for God's people will come through a descendant of David, a man sent by God to accomplish salvation, liberation. So it's going to be done through a man, through the Messiah. How will he accomplish it? Well, speaking of Christ, the Apostle Paul says, if I can leap forward, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in him we have redemption through, anybody know what it says? Through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That's what the Bible says. So redemption is essentially, first of all, primarily spiritual. It's the first and foremost of spiritual reality. Liberation is freedom from the power and the penalty of sin, which is the great bondage. We'll see that more in a minute too. So the message is there's salvation in the Messiah. It is available to his people, to God's people. How do I get to be one of God's people? I embrace his Messiah. I come under his banner. I embrace him. I believe in him. I take him for my liberator. I accept him as my king, which is what Messiah is, a king, and as my redeemer. He is a horn of salvation. What is that? What's a horn of salvation? Is he going to play the trumpet or something? What is that? Horn is a very interesting Old Testament term, very common in the Old Testament. It's used um, only here in that sense in the New Testament because these are Old Testament saints talking, so they're using Old Testament language. And it derives from the horn of an animal, which is what? What does a horn do for an animal? It's a point of power, if you will. It represents their uh, prestige and dignity. They, they like to show off their horns, you know. But they use them to fight, often. Many animals do. It's difficult to translate the idea here. But So a person's horn, if you will, is their standing, their power, their dignity, their prestige. So when it talks about somebody's horn in the Old Testament, it's used of men and women in the Old Testament. It's, uh, the emphasis is on strength and power and ability. Things like that. Let me give you just a couple of examples. Um, Hannah's song, which is a lot like Mary's song in the New Testament, Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2, she says um, in verse 1, my, my heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, my mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. So it's her dignity, it's her standing. God has blessed her. Her horn is exalted, her position is increased dramatically because God has been gracious to her. She too was barren for many years. Um, in verse 10, she says in 1 Samuel chapter 2, um, of Israel's kings, uh, Hannah sings, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his kings. He will exalt the horn of his anointed. Anointed is that word for Messiah. He will exalt the horn. He will 
increase their power and, and dignity of his kings, especially the Messiah. Uh, Psalm 148, verse 14, he has lifted up a horn for his people, praise for all of his godly ones. So that's speaking of a source of strength and honor for his people that God is that. Now, there's a negative side to it too. Your horn can be cast down or cut off. Um, Jeremiah 48:25, the horn of Moab, which is one of Israel's enemies, has been cut off and its arm broken. You know, when you get your horns cut off, it's like kind of a, a dumb-looking animal. You know, you just don't have quite the uh, same noble power as you used to. Job chapter 16, verse 15, Job grieving about himself, he says, I have sewed sackcloth over my skin and thrust my horn in the dust. See, it's a very vivid image. An animal raises its horn as a symbol of power and dignity. And of Moab, God's going to cut off its horn. But Job, in agony, agony has no esteem or, or dignity left about his person, so he thrusts his horn in the ground. And it, that's, the way, that's the language he uses. He's saying, I'm, I'm nothing. I have no standing. I have no prestige. I have no dignity at all. So our text in Luke refers plainly to the usage in, um, I think, Psalm 132.17, where it says, There I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. You see, David's prestige and greatness and glory will spring forth long after he's dead because his descendant is going to be the Messiah. So it definitely has messianic overtones. Also, 2 Samuel 22, verse 3, My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and refuge. Clearly that language is so similar to what Zechariah is saying. There's linguistic similarities there. So the horn of David, the horn of my salvation, Zechariah captures both of those concepts here. The horn of salvation is one of sufficient ability and glory to achieve salvation. That's what Messiah brings. Redemption. He can do it. A child of David will be able to accomplish salvation, redemption, by the payment of a price. He must be of sufficient strength to pay the price, to ransom his people. And as we know the story from the other side, looking back, so he was. He laid down his sinful life on our behalf to satisfy the demands of God's justice against us because of our sin. Only Jesus was able to accomplish this. Only Christ was a sinless, spotless lamb. Only Christ had the purity to save us and the infinite nature to absorb all of our sin in himself. And only Christ was willing to lay that down for his enemies, his own life. That leads us to the next question to consider. Why is God doing this? Why is God acting? Why is God moving to save unworthy people? Well, what Zechariah reveals, and it's the Holy Spirit speaking through him because he's prophesying, God said he would. God is fulfilling his promises. Verse 70, As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. That's a good start right there. It was prophesied from the beginning, for one thing, to Adam and Eve, that a destroyer of the enemy would come. Somebody's going to come and crush the head of the serpent, remember? Genesis chapter 3. Moses spoke of him, this future person, as the prophet who would be raised up. David spoke of him as the king who would sit at God's right hand. 
Isaiah spoke of him as the Emmanuel, God with us, the counselor, the ruler, the mighty God, he called him. Um, Wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our sins. Jeremiah and Zechariah spoke of him as the righteous branch, a priest on a throne, Zechariah chapter 6. His, his name, Jeremiah 23, 6, the Lord our righteousness, he would be called. Ezekiel spoke of him as the shepherd, and Daniel as the son of man whose dominion would last forever. And that's just a few. So God said he would. When God speaks, it's going to come to pass, and it's coming to pass. Then verse 72, um, here in Luke 1, he says, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham. And that takes us right back to the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 17. God promised Abraham that one of his descendants, through one of his descendants, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And that's coming to pass. That's coming to pass. Because God promised it to the fathers. But it's just very similar language there to Mary's song, verse 54 and verse 55 of Luke, where Mary sings about God's covenant with Abraham. In Genesis 22:18, it says, And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And promises were made. And your seed shall possess the gates of their enemies. So God would display mercy in remembering the promises that he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and to the prophets. God is faithful to his plans, to his promises. There's another reason, to have a pure people's service. Look at verse 74. To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. That's another reason. So God is doing it because he said he would. He's doing it because of the fathers, the relationship he had with them and the promises he made to them. And he's doing it to call out a people that will serve him in holiness and righteousness. So all of that's going on. Zechariah had a prophetic picture in the land of peace being administered by the Messiah Redeemer. It was a, a land free of fear and where joyful service is rendered to God by his people. And Zechariah is quoting that. He's, he's right there with that same image. The picture is millennial it's, it's in its character. I think, I think it is. Just like with Mary's song, Zechariah's song looks to the complete messianic picture combining a vision of both comings into one, which is the way the Old Testament presented the Messiah. Somehow he's a suffering Messiah and somehow he dies and somehow he rules forever and he rules over the entire world and his kingdom shall have no end and there's no end to the expanse of it and he rules with a rod of iron and yet he's dead. And he gives up his life for us. It's a guilt offering for us. How does that come together? Well, we know, looking back, he comes twice. Once to bear our sin, once humbly, once as a peasant man. And then he comes again to reign and rule, which is yet to come. So here's the saving Christ and the ruling Christ. And again, that was the proper picture to give by God's direction because that's what was being offered to the nation of Israel. This is pre-Christianity time here. What's being offered to Israel is their Messiah. Who is their Messiah? One that would pay for their sins and die for them and one who would rule forever on David's throne and grant them 
the highest place as a people in the whole world. The whole world will come to Israel for wisdom and knowledge and they'll have the most favored place. That's what's being offered. God will do all of that. But only part of it's been accomplished. Why? Because Israel rejected the Messiah. So it's still future. It's going to happen. But now we're living in the in-between time between the first coming and the second coming. And that leads us to how God is going to do all this. And here Zechariah directs his attention to his own son. Verse 76. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. So John, this eight-day-old baby, that's who he's talking to, will prepare God's way for his visit. Now these final verses are critical, I believe. There's a definite element of political liberation, if you want to call it that, in what Zechariah's words have meant so far. Messiah will redeem not only his people, but the nation, as a nation, destroy their enemies so they can serve God without fear. I mean, that's just clear. And as things stood in these times, most Jews were only externally faithful to the covenant. They wanted political freedom, and they wanted that more than anything. But the idea of serving him without fear and Holiness and righteousness before him all our days was not the foremost thing in their hearts. Not in Zechariah's time. They really wanted to throw off the Romans and have their own country. But their faith, is, as it is for many Jews today, was more of a point of national identity for them than a wholehearted love for God. So John is to prepare the Lord's way as he comes. God's way is to come to men and women whose hearts are open to Him. Not just some blessing. See, the focus has always got to be on Him. People who are receptive to the salvation that He wants to provide and not justifying their own righteousness. People's hearts and attitudes have to be made right through God's power in the prophetic word and then Messiah can come. So specifically, John's job will be to bring men and women to a realization and a confession of sin and develop in them a a longing and a hunger for the Messiah that God is going to bring forth, the Messiah Redeemer. John will proclaim to the people the arrival of redemption, but plainly, this redemption is spiritual first. Then if that takes root, it is political and cultural. So first get right with God, And then Messiah's rule will be glorious and good. So the real liberation, the first order liberation, is to be freed from sin, to be forgiven. And the Jews could not receive the kingdom when that's all they wanted. They did not see a spiritual need, a recurrent theme in the Gospels, that they just don't see it. Because they were, this is a Bible term, self-righteous, just like many Americans are. We are chosen. The Gentiles are dogs. So we are better. Remember Jesus arguing with the religious leaders in John chapter 8? Their steadfast claim to the truth was this. We are Abraham's offspring. Remember that? Jesus says Abraham didn't kill the people that God sent to speak to them on his behalf. Abraham didn't do that. So what are you calling yourselves Abraham's offspring for? You don't act like Abraham. In fact, uh, the devil does that. You guys are the children of the devil. They didn't like that. That was not a popular thing to say, but it was true. Look at Luke chapter 3. Just flip over there real quick. Verse uh, verse 8, John the Baptist 
Now, he calls them in verse 7 a brood of vipers. So, you know, again, not politically correct. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Verse 8, therefore, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. You know, God can make children to Abraham out of rocks. So don't, like, get too self-glorious, you know, pat yourself on the back kind of thing. Don't do that too much. So John's job is to call for repentance and to bring a true spiritual awakening. Look back at chapter 1 again, verse 77. He says, To give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. He had to break up the hard ground. That was a hard job. Man. You know, breaking up the ground of people's self-righteousness is not an easy task. And then when John had made maximum progress in doing that, when he was at the peak of doing that, when people were the most ready as they were ever going to be, Messiah would come. You know, God gives people what they need, not just what they want. And he knows our greatest need is reconciliation with him. And everything else has to follow after that. Everything has to follow after that. If you don't have that, it doesn't matter if you get this blessing or that blessing or that other thing because it won't last. So Zechariah continues with a, a beautiful picture he draws from Malachi chapter 4, verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. All of this would flow from the tender mercy of God, he says. Mankind is in a state of darkness. Sin, misery, delusion, folly, ignorance, wandering, strife, pain, darkness. But dawn is breaking here. Dawn is breaking. God is coming, he says. And the sunrise, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will shine and dispel darkness and death for those whose hearts are ready for him, are waiting for him. He will guide us to peace, he says. Reconciliation with our Heavenly Father. What a message from this old priest here. But he's not just an old priest because the Holy Spirit of God is speaking through him. It's a very wonderful thing. Now, the context in the setting here is dealing with Israel, the chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is the messianic promise as revealed to them. The messianic kingdom that is being offered to them. The church... And the gospel to the Gentiles and global Christianity, what God is doing between the two comings of the Messiah, the two appearances of Christ on earth, is not yet in view. So Zechariah speaks from a Jewish heart, from a Jewish perspective, just like Mary did. But we can learn from this. Because the principle of how God works is the same. Whether it's the the nation of Israel or whether it's global blessing for the world that he promised would come through Abraham. For the Jews, it's faith and repentance first. Then national blessing. For the Christian, it's faith and repentance. Then personal blessing or a meaningful and useful life, if you want to put it that way. First, embrace Christ and his saving work first. Then God will bless us as we have ready hearts for him to work in us. That's how we come and that's how we live. You have to keep the work of repentance 
fresh and faith fresh. Pride has to be cast aside and humble preparation of the soul undertaken. And that has to be ongoing. So you ask yourself, are, are we, am I, holding part of ourselves back from the Lord? See, that's, what, that's the kind of thing John the Baptist was, to break up that hard ground. What are you holding back? Get rid of that. Put that down. Is my spiritual life threatened by routine? Have I become dull? Am I hungering for Christ? Am I hungering for righteousness? That's where we need to be, especially as we look ahead to what God will be doing in our midst. We need to break up that hard ground and be ready for him to move. So that's the application. Be ready. Be ready. Well, let's finish the story and then we're done. Verse 80, the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit. And he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So John grew strong, and at some point he went to live in the wild places, which over there is pretty wild. still is, the wilderness parts of Israel. And get to know his God until the day he was ready to come forth. And of course, we know he'll be back. John will be back. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you for these wonderful people and how you broke through into this world and did mighty things. And Father, they rejected Christ then, but that was much to the good of the world because the gospel has gone to all peoples, including the Jews. And someday, Lord, by your own grace and mercy, you will call them back into a relationship with yourself as a people, as a nation. And we look forward to that day. Even us Gentiles, Father, because when we see that, we will glory in you fulfilling your promises to all of us who are unworthy of your grace. And we thank you for that. You are a good God. And your mercies are ever present and ready for us if our hearts are ready. So we ask you by your grace to soften us and reveal us to our own selves so that we can be ready for the work you want to do in us. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.